Hey everyone, I wanted to thank you for listening to another episode of Speed Bumps. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you subscribed on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If you're listening on Spotify, I would really appreciate if you clicked that five-star button. And if you're on Apple, you can click the five-star button and leave a written review if you're so inclined. If you're interested in coming on my show, you can reach out to me at speed.bumps.com podcast on Instagram. When you're driving, speed bumps force you to slow down. Some are big, some are small. Regardless of the size, they can really mess up your car if you go over them too fast. In this go, go, go world, society tends to have a negative view of speed bumps. But in my opinion, they don't have to be a bad thing. We all go through speed bumps in life, such as getting married, a spiritual awakening, having children, changing jobs, a trauma, and more. In this podcast, you will hear the various speed bumps that people have encountered and how those experiences have shaped them into the person they are now. Because every story has speed bumps, and that is what makes life interesting. wanted to welcome you to another episode of Speed Bumps and today with me I have Tana. I came across her Instagram and not only is she a hunter in Alaska, she's also a nutrition coach and you founded Bristol Bay Fitness, correct? Yeah. Yes. So I've been following her for a while and I'm super excited that she came on. So thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've, some of the hunting things that you've done I mean, Alaska is just beautiful, right? You, you've been posting pictures of the Aurora Borealis and um, I've never hunted. So I have nothing to compare this to, but it I feel like all the gear that you'd have to carry, like that has to be really heavy, right? Yeah. I mean, depending on how much you pack for, you know, if you go out for a day trip, it might not be that much, but the type of hunting that I do in Alaska, it's usually overnights. It's usually, you know, a week long. Um, it's usually like, kind of a full commitment. And so you're packing pretty much everything on your back to live for a week and be prepared for every scenario and every weather phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah heavy. Do you carry water too? Cause I feel like water is one of the heaviest things or do you have like life straws or something that you use? Yeah, no, I carry water, um, for about a day at a time. And then I, I use a water filter. So okay. I carry like a hundred ounce water bladder and then filter, you know, from a water source, which thankfully in Alaska, we have a lot of water sources. If you like hunt in the desert, then you do have to pack all of your water. But yeah, we have a lot to filter. (laughs) That makes sense. Uh, Before I ask you too many questions, uh, can you please tell me two things you love about yourself? Oh gosh. Um, So I love that I am a doer. So if I say something, I'm going to do it. Um, I just feel like there are a lot of people that talk about a lot of things. And for me, like if I talk about it, I'm going to be doing it. Um, Another thing that I like, I guess, is that I feel I'm pretty resilient. (laughs) I've been through a lot of things, um, really hard things in my life, and I can still push through and continue on. So I guess resilience and uh, being a doer. Yeah, I remember 
and I'm probably gonna get my timelines wrong because I get the timelines wrong in my own life. Uh, but you had a bear attack, right? Or not an attack, but you were out hunting yeah. solo and there was a bear that charged you or maybe you weren't solo, yeah. maybe, right? I was with my brother, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Had a near death experience with a, one of the largest bears in the world. So. <laughs> and was... is that a black bear, a grizzly bear? I, I don't know. Um, I mean, grizzly and browns, they're kind of interchangeable, but brown bears are bigger than grizzlies. Um, They're kind of the same family, but grizzlies are like interior and brown bears are coastal, basically a difference in their diet. So brown bears eat a salmon, so they're very fat and really big. (laughs) (laughs) Interior grizzlies, you know, just live off like animals and, you know, so salmon bears, I guess, are the biggest bears in the world and and they're called brown bears because they're coastal. Gotcha. What made you start Bristol Bay Fitness? Um, I wanted to start something from my home that I could do online and, you know, virtually from anywhere. I kind of started out as a personal trainer, but I wanted to open my business from home because I got a bunch of kids overnight and became, you know, a family of you know, five kids plus my husband and I. So family of seven overnight from just us two. And so that was a huge life shift, but I, I'm like a really hard worker and it's ingrained in me to work and help people. And so that's kind of how Bristol Bay Fitness was born was a way that I could personal train people virtually, not like being at a gym um, and do it while I was raising five kids overnight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, story, but yeah, I, I joke that I like built my business during the hardest time of parenthood. <laughs> well, and what is it? Something basically when you're put in a hard situation, you do, it has to get done, you know? So if you have to all of a sudden have to five more mouths to feed, it's, mm-hmm. you're going to figure out how to do that. Cause you have to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And my husband was working at the time too. And you know, now it's kind of roles a reverse. Like I built my business and then he quit his government job so that he can like build his entrepreneur business. So we've kind of, you know, reverse roles in that way, which is funny, but, um, yeah, I, I can't even believe it. That was like four years ago when I first started my business. And today I'm like, it was all blur. I don't even know we got to this point. It feels like a really long time, but it's also been an incredible experience of growth too. Because it's not just you. You have other coaches on your team, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. About two years ago, uh, around COVID time, actually, I built my team because there was like this explosion of people needing, um, you know, training and coaching throughout COVID and being stuck at home and um, worried about their health. And so, yeah, I built a team uh, like toward the end of that COVID year. And so, yeah, I have three coaches under me or two of them are assistant coaches and one of them is more like a, a life coach. Okay therapy for 12 years. So you mentioned your husband is now starting his own entrepreneur business. And uh, some of the questions when you're like, or ask Adam are his responses are just gold. Um, What is his entrepreneur business now too? He's just kind of doing random stuff for now. (laughs) He's not sure what he's going to do, but as of now he's, um, I guess I call him a professional trapper. He's running a trap line, selling all of his furs and everything he gets on the trap line. Um, and yeah, that's the start. And then he'll probably do something related to flying eventually. He's not quite sure, but, um, yeah, he just wants to do like what he loves to do, which is hunting and trapping and, uh, make a living out of it, which is what we all want to do, right? Make a living out of our hobbies. 
So yeah, yeah make, make a living. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I feel like that determination, persistence, and like you had said earlier, uh, you your follow through, not just this wish I want to do it, but making a plan of how to get there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What um, what made you decide to do foster care? We just simple couldn't have kids. We couldn't get pregnant. We did fertility treatments. We did several IUIs. We did a couple in vitro treatments, and just we just kept being told like you have unexplained infertility. We're not sure why. Um, and so I moved to the bush in Alaska, and I had talked to a woman that had adopted a couple kids through foster care. And I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know you could adopt through foster care. I thought it was just like, you get the kids and then you have to raise them and then give them back. And like that to me, being like I wanted um, to change a kid's life and give them a good family. And so, yeah, but we couldn't afford adoption at the time, like through an agency, you know, it's 30 to $40,000. Yeah. We had already done all these fertility treatments. We were just like, Oh, we can't do it. And so, I talked to this woman and she's like, no, I adopted two girls through foster care. And so I just talked to her more about that. And that day I went home, talked to my husband and he's like, well, let's do it. And, uh, so we reached out to, you know, OCS and got our licensing and everything, which took a good couple months. And then we didn't have a placement for a year and a half because we were, our goal was foster to adopt. And so a lot of times they don't want to, you know, give kids to you that maybe aren't up for adoption or they're probably going to be reunified with their family, which is always the number one goal of foster care, which is difficult. <laughs> yes. It, that is their goal is to reunify with families. Um, and the other part of that is that we aren't Alaska native. And so we are basically at the bottom of the preference list because a lot of these kids are Alaska native, um, you know, coming out of tribes. And so basically they exhaust all of their efforts <laughs> for every other home possible. And Adam and I are last on the list because we're not Alaska native so we're not a ICWA preference home. And so we waited a year and a half in foster care. So I was like, man, this, you know, you see all these kids that needed homes and here we are still with an empty home. So it was yeah. like three years of infertility and, you know, a year and a half of waiting for a foster care placement. And I'm just like, man, maybe we are going to have to just go to an adoption agency. I don't know how we're going to build a family. And then we um, got a call randomly that there was a group of five siblings and they needed a home and there was nobody else that would take them and there was nowhere else for them to go. And that's when we were like, well, we're licensed for one, but sure. <laughs> take five. <laughs> so that's how that happened. <laughs> so okay. you mentioned two abbreviations. What is OCS and what is ICWA? OCS is office of children's services. Okay. Um, I think in the lower 48, they might refer to it as CPS or child yeah, protection D- services. Like those are DCF, kind of yeah. Okay. Yep. Similar agencies. And then um, ICWA is the Indian Child Welfare Act. So okay. ICWA is basically the law for Indian children to keep them um, within their culture as much as possible. Okay. Uh, so my husband is adopted and his mom okay. over her lifetime fostered over 100 kids. Wow. You know, she had three biological and I'm going to get this wrong. It's crazy. They don't listen. I want to say like she adopted five and then, you know, all the rest were, uh, you know, re, re, I, I think reunified with her families or had to go back. Um, mm-hmm. And she's, she'll be 94 this year. 
Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Hats yeah. off to her. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I remember asking her one day, I was like, why did you do this? Because back then I feel like it was a really uncommon thing to do. Now it's more necessarily common to do foster care, but people know about it. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I just really liked kids. And I was just like, okay. Like, wow. <laughs> she's just so sweet. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, you've. I know you've posted pictures of um, where you looked maybe muscularly strong, but you had talked about not actually being healthy. Mm -hmm. Can you describe like, because everyone assumes if you have a six pack and you have muscles that you must be one of the healthiest people around and how that, especially for women, maybe isn't the case. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my philosophy with training and coaching is to take care of your body at a, at a whole level, you know, not just like, oh, I, I want the scale number to be this, this number, or, um, I want to look this certain way or fit this certain size, but, you know, down to everything. How is your metabolism? How is your, how are your hormones functioning? Um, if you're a female, are you having like regular cycles that aren't debilitating, Um, do you have energy every day? Can you sleep well? Do you wake up rejuvenated or exhausted? You know, looking at health is a total picture. And so, um, you know, I really got into health and nutrition and fitness early in my teens because I had a lot of gut problems and gut issues. And I was diagnosed with IBS at like 14. Um, the doctors couldn't tell me what that was. That's just kind of their blanket diagnosis when you have stomach stuff and they don't know what it is. Um, so after many, many tests, they're like, you have IBS. And I just couldn't eat a lot of the things that a regular high schooler could. And so I had to really dive into like healthy eating and working out a lot and take care of myself so that my stomach felt good. Well, into my late teens, early twenties, I wanted to get into bodybuilding competitions because I'd done a lot of weightlifting. I became obsessed with it, probably too obsessed. And so, um, you know, it was like, when you do bodybuilding competitions, you're seeking an aesthetic, you're seeking a look. And that's usually, you know, six pack muscular, be super lean. Um, And what they don't tell you is that when you do that as a female, you're wrecking your hormones and you are, I think that's actually what wrecked my fertility in the first place um, is I was so lean for so long and basically under eating for several years to keep myself at that aesthetic. Um, And so I was actually very unhealthy at that time. You know, I wasn't sleeping. I was stressed out. I was losing hair. Um, I did not have regular cycles, you know, then when I got married, I couldn't get pregnant. And so I think it's really important that, you know, to recognize, and it sucks because diet culture has kind of made this to where if you don't look a certain way, um, then you're not successful. Or if you look this, you can look this certain way if you buy this product or do this quick diet or do this quick fix. And so it's really tough in, in the business that I'm in because the way that I'm selling it isn't isn't sexy. It's not like, oh, you're going to look this way in 30 days. It's like, actually, you're probably going to need about a year to even get your body to a healthy place so you can diet and lose some body fat. And you might even gain a little weight in that process because you've destroyed your health for the last five years. Nobody wants to do that. They're no. like, well, that's the answer I wanted. Yeah, that's that doesn't sound fun. I don't want to put in that work and that effort. And so um, just retraining uh, and and just showing women like it's okay. It's okay to hold on 
to extra weight, it's okay because how is your health otherwise? Like you cannot as, as a female be incredibly lean for an extremely long time and be probably be a hundred percent healthy because women need extra fat, like to reproduce. We just do. Yeah. That's how we were built. So, um, yeah, I guess that's a long answer to what you asked, but it's important yeah. to look at the total picture, I guess. Yeah. So I, I love long answers. I love, uh, things that lead into conversations, like don't ever feel bad about that. And that right there though, one of the things, last things you said of women need fat is so controversial in today's society. Like you said, because of diet culture. Oh no. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I did hear you. And then my sound just went out. How about now? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what, one of the last things you said was women need fat. And in today's diet culture, that is so controversial and goes against all the norms. And so um, saying, no, you don't want a six pack. You want a little bit of, I'm not saying be obese. That's not what I, I don't think either of us are saying, but having a little bit of fat around your stomach or having that have be that board wash uh, flat abs, like that's not good for you. And mm-hmm you know, one of the other things you said was everyone wants this quick fix of take these gummies and you're going to lose weight in, you know, 30 pounds in 30 days. Well, even losing that much weight that fast, regardless of how you do it, isn't healthy. Exactly. Yeah. So yep. were you, um, were you ever on birth control too? At one point, the doctors put me on birth control because at this time, obviously, my body was freaking out. And so right. they on birth control, like, oh, it'll regulate your cycle, not actually educating you on what it actually does. So yeah, yeah. I've been on it for like, I want to say like two months and instantly I recognized how horrible it was on my body. Yeah. And I just went off. I was like, well, they didn't tell me there was any side effects, but I can feel it. And I know my body. So nope, I'm not doing this, you know. So I think it's awesome that you weren't on it for that long. Uh, I didn't listen to my body and I was on it for years. And like you, they never told me uh, any potential side effects or, hey, if you're on it for a really long time, you might have trouble having kids. Like th- they don't tell you any of that. They don't tell you that you don't have a real period when you're on your when you're on birth control. Um, it's wild. And so I was just curious if while you were also doing like the weightlifting and the bodybuilding competitions, if you were also on birth control, because obviously that would also have a potentially detrimental effect on the body. Yeah. When they hand you out out the pill or whatever, you know, they're not saying, oh, this is going to make your reproductive system basically dormant. It's going to completely shut down everything and just silence it until you decide to go off of it again. Like when you think about it that way, you're like, why would I do that? You know, if I ever want to get pregnant or want to have kids. Yeah. Why would I just shut everything down? Because it's going to take a while for that thing to start back up or maybe not even ever work again. So, um. They don't tell you that. They say this will regulate your cycle. You'll have a regular period. It's just just a synthetic controlled bleed. It has nothing to do with um, your cycle. Like it's not actually a cycle, like you said. It's just shutting it down, making everything go dormant for Uh, however long. There was the movie or the documentary is probably 10 years ago now, but Ricky Lake actually put out one called The Business of Being Born. And then recently she did one called the business of birth control. And that was put out I don't know, maybe in the past, like six months. And that was really eye opening. Have you seen that? 
Mm-hmm. And, but it's a lot of the things that we're talking about in, um, when they were prescribing Yaz, like a lot of girls were dying because the blood clots and it, you know, that was a big part of the documentary and no one just was ever told. Mm. It was, oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. So (laughs) we have to become informed ourselves because things like that, just, they don't tell the whole truth with it. And it's because they're not taught it either. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're taught if you have an abnormal cycle or you have, you know, pain or whatever, prescribe a birth control pill fixes everything. If you don't want to get pregnant, just go on that. Like that's what they're taught in medical school. So right. We're not taught like the more holistic side of it. I had to have a cyst removed and their answer to me not getting any more cysts was to artificially put me in menopause for like three months and then put me on birth control. And I was like, well, what if I want to have kids? And they're like, oh, we'll just take you off of it. You'll get pregnant in a month or two and you'll be totally fine. And I was like, that is not how that works. (laughs) Yeah, they actually, oh, I forgot that. They actually put me on the birth control pill prior to every fertility treatment because like from in vitro IUIs, because they wanted to control your cycle. So they would put you on a three, three week cycle of the pill, which was insane. Um, so they put you on it for three weeks and then they take you out off of it. And then you inject yourself with a bunch of different hormones for like a couple weeks, induce ovulation, and then they do the treatment. And after I did all that, I mean, this is like in my early twenties and I'm just like, why did I do that? Like, how does, how does that make any sense to you? You know, but they want to control it. And so, but I mean, I just felt how much it messed with my body at that time. So it's a lot of money wasted. Let's put it that way. There were lessons learned. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> our lessons are very expensive lessons. <laughs> 100%. I've had some very expensive lessons, uh, but they're just lessons. They're speed bumps. It's- what the show's about. It's all right. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> There's a couple speed bumps that I know that you had kind of shared on Instagram, but I don't know if you want to share them on here. So instead of being me, me being specific, I'm going to ask, is there any speed bumps that you're comfortable talking about? Um, yeah, any of them. <laughs> I mean, if I share it online, pretty open about it. I'm an open book. Do you feel comfortable talking about how the young your youngest son and yes I refer to him as your son on purpose um you were given very short notice and he had to go back to his I think his biological parents or maybe even just a member of the tribe because you had mentioned the Indian Child Welfare Act and how it seemed like that kind of kicked in and this whole thing seemed to have happened very quickly Mm -hmm. yeah we were given a foster baby um and you know, I've just kind of always wanted a baby. Like I I never have had a baby of my own. And so I'm, when we had five kids, I was like, I feel like there's a baby out there somewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we got this baby and he was just the cutest little thing. And I won't say his name for privacy, but uh, we raised him until he was three. You know, he, we taught him his first words, Uh, you know, we were the only parents he ever knew. Um, And we were, you know, kind of moving toward adoption with that, because usually after two, well, after 15 months in foster care, if kids in foster care for that long, 
and their biological parents have not, you know, done everything on their case plan as far as going to treatment and getting clean and doing all their classes and stuff. Mm-hmm. At 15 months, o- OCS can legally terminate their rights or file for termination. Okay. And so, you know, usually at the two-year mark, it's like, all right, you know, we're moving forward with this. This kid needs permanency. And so he had been in the system for three years already and they hadn't done anything. And so it was a really t- tricky, tough situation. But OCS had dropped the ball in a lot of ways and kind of everybody on the case had dropped the ball in a lot of ways. And so this kid is just like floating in the system as, you know, we're the only parents and family he's ever known since he was a baby. And uh, they didn't really quite know how to handle that because they couldn't fight the back of the ball that they had dropped with visitation stuff. And then, then you have the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so it was just a really, really tricky situation, um, which in fact, he probably, I don't know, he, it should have not gone on that long, I guess I should say. And then, uh, yeah, we got a call, um, and on court one day, instead of like moving forward with what they were going to do, they just said, they just demanded that he be returned home immediately. And they gave us 48 hours notice to say goodbye. And that was it. It And that was the court or the, or OCS. Um, the tribe kind of demanded it through the courts and OCS couldn't fight it because of the Indian child welfare they had done in that case. Um, they had dropped the ball in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, it was basically like the mistakes of the people in charge that did this. I mean, it was, it's really hard. Um, and I, I still can't really process it, but it was basically, all right, this baby that you've had for three years. You have 48 hours to say goodbye. And then, you know, for me, becoming a foster parent, I always thought that if I ever had to do this, you know, if it was the best thing for them, I could handle it. Yeah. But the situation is it wasn't. I can honestly say that. And so, yeah, it was just a very hard thing because, I mean, if even if it was an older child, it would have been hard, but easier because you know that they can handle themselves. I mean, a three-year-old toddler that doesn't know any else. Right. That was really, really hard because how is he going to handle that transition just being ripped out and uh, put somewhere else? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I still, and then they treat it like, you know, they're not your kids. So tough luck and you'll never see or talk to them again or hear, hear about him again, which is just crazy to me. I think the whole system is just messed up because there's no transition. There's no grieving process. There's no you were just the babysitter. And, uh, so that was definitely the hardest thing. And it's, you know, it's been over a half year now and I still to this day, like cry almost every day for him, you know, and don't know if I'll ever feel like totally complete without him and our family because he was our little boy. But, um, yeah, it just, it sucks. (laughs) There's no easy way. I feel like in some cases, CPS, OCS, whatever acronym you want to use, um, can do good things mm-hmm. but in a different way we've experienced our version of cps dropping the ball or family services or whatever and mm-hmm. i understand to an extent how frustrating it can be of you're supposed to be there for the kids and that's supposed to be your mission statement yet you drop the ball in so many ways and you don't seem to care and then when someone points out that you did something wrong it's just oh not my problem. Like, and that's just so 
mind boggling. And like you said, if they were a little bit older, maybe you can try and explain things. Mm -hmm. But a three-year-old doesn't even understand that when you wake up in the morning, they conceptually get that at some point they're going to get lunch and dinner, but they're only focused on breakfast. They have no long-term understanding of things. Yeah. And early childhood is all about that, you know, connection. Yeah. And so, I mean, how do you do that? How, how do you take a baby that's been raised in this family for three years and, you know, you rip them out within 24 or 48 hours, put them somewhere else, and then just expect that that's going to go well. You know, it's well, crazy. It's yeah. Completely. And it, no transition, nothing. And then usually, um, and I'm not really afraid to talk about this stuff because it, I think it needs to be shown, but usually they will do a trial home visit where, you know, they send the kid home and to their biological family or to wherever they're going. Mm-hmm. And OCS will monitor and, um, you know, do a trial. Like you have three yeah. months to yourself to make sure that this is a safe home for the child. I mean, okay. it should always be about the kids, right? Right. And ensuring their safety. I had a caseworker, one of our first caseworkers tell me that over half of kids that are reunified die over half. And so that's why, yeah. So that's why they do a trial home visit to make sure that they're not just putting a kid back in an unsafe environment. They have to like prove themselves for three to six months. And so what was the weirdest thing about this case is they demanded that zero trial be done. So he was returned home to a place he'd never been. And they completely closed out the case, swept it under the rug, and never monitored any of it. I I don't even know how to ask my next question. Um, you can see me. Listeners can't see me. I am literally speechless right now. It's not a bad internet connection. I guess... One of my first questions is going to be, if that statistic is true that over half of reunified children die, and I don't know if that's just in Alaska or the U.S., that sounds like the initial system to get them to the trial period isn't working. So why are we allowing trial periods in the first place? And how is the the tribes okay with this? Like, I have so many questions that I don't think you're going to be able to answer any of them. But I'll write a book on <laughs> you, you have to because that statistic, like, I'm still attempting to wrap my head around that of, and then you're telling me that they just gave him, like, yeah. no follow-up? With drug abuse and with drug addiction, um, only... of people that go through treatment stay clean. So they say that only like 5% of kids that come into foster care are even reunified to a clean family. 95% of the time, they don't get better. Um, So it's like very, very rare to overcome these types of addictions. But the system is very set on reunifying to biological families regardless. So that's how that happens. It sucks. It's part of me 
understands want that desire for the biological reunification. Okay. But CPS or OCS is supposed to be there for the times that these people can't take care of children. And if they're in a family that is caring for them and they've been a consistent placement, like I just, I'm having a really difficult time wrapping my head around this. And while I knew some of it from the little bit that you shared on Instagram, um, I didn't know the vast majority of what you're telling me right now. So I'm attempting to sound like (laughs) a coherent person who has an intelligent thought and I'm sounding like a blumbling idiot right now (laughs) because I can't, I can't fathom what you're telling me. It's not that I don't believe you. It's just the, um, I don't want to say corruption, but maybe it is corruption in all of these government systems. It's never been about the kids. It's never been about the welfare of people in general. It's, it seems to be about money. Like, I, I don't know any other reason. Money and laziness, I guess. Yep. It's a, and, and it's right. I mean, it's unfathomable and a lot of people don't even realize what goes on and the corruption that goes on at the system. And that's probably only 5% of it. I mean, the things that we've seen and how these kids have been treated is absolutely asinine. All levels, not just OCS or just the, I mean, it's everybody. There's corruption at every level. Like (laughs) I was having this conversation with my husband the other day um, because I've seen corruption in medical field. I've seen it in every, and in every system that I've been involved in. And I just looked at him and I said, is there any system that we can trust? Is there any system that is not corrupt? And I can't think of one. <laughs> I, not, I can't either. I just, I just can't. And I have to be grateful, you know, for this, for the foster care system, because, you know, we adopted our five kids and became a forever family that way. But it was all because of the caseworker that we had. It depends on who's in charge. And it shouldn't be that way. You know? No, <laughs> no, and, and and we've seen that of it is definitely the uh, personal beliefs and work ethic of a caseworker that can determine whether or not a child is safe. Yep, not anything else, just those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you see There's a lot of people involved in a case. You know, there's. There's the tribe, there's um, the guardian ad litem, who's supposed to be the child's advocate. You know, there's the caseworker, there's the attorney of the, of OCS, there's the attorney of the tribe. And so there's a lot of different parties involved. And that's what makes it so incredibly complicated because depending on who's in charge, um, I mean, we've flat out had tribes and attorneys tell us that we couldn't have these kids because we were white, straight up in court. Um, it didn't matter that we were teaching them their subsistence culture. It didn't matter that we were giving them the only stable, loving home that they've ever had. It didn't matter. It was all based on race. And then sometimes you get some that are very supportive and see, you know, all that you're doing for the kids. So it just all depends on who's in charge. And I wish that people could put their own stupid political things aside. I mean, it's all politics. If you really think yeah. about it. Um, if people ask me like, oh, what's it like? It's all politics. It's all who's in charge and who has the most money. And I hate saying that, but it's true. And I'm pretty honest about that. And <laughs> people can try yeah. to prove me wrong because I've been through it um, many times. So people can try to say that, you know, they 
they're doing what's best for the kids, but rarely, rarely have I seen them do what's in the best interest of the children. And that's what's tough. Yeah, my husband, um, he came in about halfway into his uh, adoptive mother's fostering care journey. And so he would take care of like the younger babies and things like that. And he would tell me stories of there was times that she would have to give a baby back and she knew that they weren't going to a safe place. They, and he's like, it wasn't often that she would outwardly express that. He goes, but there there were a couple times and I just, it, it is all about politics. It, it, even in the lower 48, it's all about politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and one thing that I feel like uh, OCS didn't take into account is the five kids that you adopted, that was their sibling. And he was their sibling. So it's not just, you know, your son lost you and your husband. He lost five siblings. And now because your children are um, Alaskan Native, like, is the son that got taken from you, are they from the same tribe? Like, can you connect that way? Or is that not allowed? I I, I don't know. They're from different tribes. Um, But yeah, you know, they don't talk about that either. I mean, it was extremely not only traumatizing and heart-wrenching for my husband and I, um, but like my kids, (laughs) my son still cries to this day. Like he'll just be crying in his room and he's like, I miss my brother, you know? So don't think about that. They don't. And it's just because they're not actually educated and understand connection. Like it's all about biological and blood. But as we know, it has something to do with it. It's important, but it's not everything. No. Um, connection, love, it outweighs blood. I've seen it. I've experienced it, <laughs> you know. And uh, obviously, they always want to know where they came from. And you want to keep them connected to their culture as much as possible. Right. But yeah, siblings lost a sibling. And uh, it's it's been hard on everybody. But they yeah. don't. <laughs> they don't care. You know, and, and I've seen uh, two of your girls are they're doing foxes right now, right? Like, I don't know of girls their age that are, you know, not spending time on their phones, but instead learning to skin a fox to sell that fur. Like, they're, from the little I know, I, I'm not claiming to be an expert, from the little I know, they definitely seem to at least be doing some part of their culture. I've seen videos of you guys doing, uh, teaching them how to descale and fish and or descale a fish and debone it and hunt. And I feel like the argument that you're not teaching them their culture, it, it just, it, it doesn't stand. And wasn't their, one of their biological parents like supportive of you guys adopting them? Mm-hmm. The, the, the sibling set? Yeah. That's the only way they're here with us today. Otherwise they wouldn't be. Because the tribe came into the court and demanded that they be returned to the tribe. They didn't have a home for them, but the tribe has power over the state. So the tribe at any point can come in and take jurisdiction over OCS, take over the case, remove the kids, even if it's unsafe, and put them wherever they want. And the only way to, I guess, combat that is to have at least one of the biological parents to say no. And 
their dad was selfless enough to see what was best for his kids. And he said, no, you will not take my kids away from the Grandas. That's where they need to stay. And I'm forever grateful for that man because he actually cared about his kids enough to protect them um, and not just look at the color of her skin, but look at what their future would be like being here. And yeah, like you said, they've learned more culture here than they ever did. Um, you know, we got these five kids, they were age range two to 10. So 10 was the oldest, two was the youngest, and there's five of them. And they had never like, they'd never cut up a fish themselves. They had never trapped anything. They had never skinned anything. They never beaded anything. Um, they knew how to sit in front of a TV. They knew how to smoke pot. They knew how to um, I mean, they saw so many different things. They knew how to huff gas. They knew how to do all of this stuff from a young age. That is not culture. Like you no. can pull the culture card all you want, but the culture is lost yeah. because they were never taught how to work. They sat in front of a TV. They had to steal food because they didn't have food. Oh, but they were taught how to smoke pot and given that for their birthday. So, I mean, it's just absolutely insane that you can pull the culture card when you actually look at, at what is happening, you would be disgusted, you know, at yeah. how these kids are being raised in their culture. So yeah. we try and to teach them as much as we can because we want to show them like, this is what your culture actually should look like. You should be hunting, fishing, trapping, you know, they shot their first caribou, they process their own meat, like, but we're still not seen as culturally appropriate because we're white. So <laughs> <laughs> It sucks. <laughs> Talk about racism. <laughs> I know. And, and and some people may get mad that uh, you being white, call, pull, quote unquote, pulling the racism card. Um, I'm not but... a racist. I adopted native kids, right? I'll, I'll say native white all day long because it is what it is. I don't judge people based on it. Exactly. Right? And that is racism. <laughs> it's you can't take one specific skin color and exclude them and say they're allowed to be discriminated against, which is what's happening to you. You're being discriminated against because you're white. That is racism. Like, and yeah. racism can happen to white people. Like, and it is happening. And I understand and recognize that the U.S. did horrible things to natives, whether it's in Alaska or in the lower 48. And that is a whole separate conversation. And, you know, some of the things that we did probably contributed to the loss, loss of their culture, but that's not the conversation about the kids present today in 2023. Right. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't contribute to that. Right. And hold on to me, like quit playing the victim and move on. <laughs> and so it's not to say that those things didn't happen. But at the same yeah. time, <laughs> you as a person, me as a person, each individual person is responsible for the choices in their life. And so just yeah. because you go through hard things, bad things, tough things, traumatizing things, you can blame it all on that. Yeah. Or you can choose to have that just be part of your story and not your whole story. That's a choice that you make. Yep. Yeah. 100%. You're in control. And yeah, whatever's happened to you, I'm sorry. I can acknowledge it. I can be empathetic, but you have your own choices and nobody else is forcing you um, to make those choices. And uh, yeah. it's just, it's so crazy. Like the amount of drug abuse and alcohol abuse and 
domestic violence and sexual abuse and stuff that goes on in a lot of these villages, it's generational. And I feel really bad because a lot of them don't know any different. And my kids would be in the same exact position if they never got out. And um, so I hope that they can be a really good like light to people and, and facilitate change in the future and help, you know, other native kids or whatever to, to break the cycle because the cycle is generational and a lot of them can't get out because there's so many different laws and things that keep them in it. You know, our kids were thankfully able to kind of break away because we had an amazing caseworker. OCS did an awesome job and their dad was very supportive of giving them a good life and not just keeping them within the tribe. So not to say that all tribes are bad either. Like I know people probably take this very bad, but I'm just, I'm very open and honest about this stuff. And uh, I can give you many different facts that prove (laughs) that, you know, this stuff that goes on is corrupt and awful. And these kids are being kept in really abusive, horrible situations just because of a law. Have you, um, I guess, two part question. Can, because it seems like OCS, uh, is the U.S. version of foster care, right? So they vet the households and things like that, and you have to have a license through them. Does the tribe have a similar agency, or can they just say, you're going to go here, and th- they can just go there? Okay. There's no sort of system or checks and balances. Of, this is a safe home. They can put them anywhere. Okay. Um, have you... And your husband discussed whether or not you would reopen your house to foster care. I can, because I can understand how, if I was in your position, I might be very hesitant to do so. We actually did. I mean, the day he left, I kind of ripped my foster care license and threw it in the trash. I was done. Um, but then my, one of my kids like got it out of the trash and taped it up. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, it was just one of those like emotional, angry responses in part of processing, but, uh, yeah, we kept our license open for the hopes that maybe someday he would come back, you know? And, uh, two months later, this is like last October, we got a call for a young girl, um, that was living in a hotel room by herself. And she had been to 12 or 13 different foster homes and had been kicked out of every single one and nobody would take her. And again, we are the last person on the preference list in our region based on just our race, but we are definitely the last person when you take the whole state into account. And they had checked every single region and nobody would take this girl. We were like the last choice. And when they called me, I just, I was just like, I'm so raw, like, and hurt about, you know, losing our son. I don't know if I could do this again, but I just had like this very strong feeling that we needed to take her in. So we did. We took in another foster kid last fall, just a couple months after we lost one. And, uh, and it does feel like a death. Like a lot of people won't admit that, but like, it feels like they died. It feels like you had a child that died. And I've talked to a lot of moms who've had both, like had their biological kids die and foster kids leave. And they said, it's very similar. And sometimes the foster leaving is almost worse than your child dying because you don't, it's the unknown of how they're doing and you don't know where they are and you don't know if you're going to see them. But anyway, that's beside the point. So we took in this foster girl, hardest, hardest kid ever. (laughs) I mean, just 
so much trauma, but I mean, she's had a really rough life and she's gone through 12 foster homes. And after two weeks, they all kick her out. Nobody will keep her longer than two weeks. And so I'm like, I gotta see like, what is up with this kid and why nobody will keep her. Of course, very hard things. Like she attempted suicide in our home, tried running away multiple times. Um, you know, young 10 year old girl, but she's been through so much trauma. Like I'm trauma informed. So I understand it's not just like, Oh, this is my kid. Take her away. You know? I'm like, oh, I completely understand why she's doing this. Yeah. Um, so we stuck with it. We stuck with her, haven't given up on her. We still have her in our home. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's been absolutely a roller coaster. But to me, like, if I can provide a safe, loving home for a child that has never had that before and that stability, you know, even if I don't feel like, even if I don't know what's going to happen in the future, whether she's going to stay or whether she's going to leave, I don't know. But um, if I can give her that stability and love that she needs, I'll do it. So yeah, we uh, jumped right back in to an even harder situation, (laughs) I guess. And we're just going to continue moving forward, I guess. (laughs) Do the kids get any say at a certain age of whether or not if they want to stay with a foster parent or go back to their biological parents? Or go to another foster care? Like, could they? Yeah, they don't really get a say unless if they're up for adoption and they're over 10, they have to consent. Okay. So like our older girls, when we adopted them, they were both over 10. And so they had to consent in the court and say, yeah, I want, I want to be adopted um, by Adam and Tana. It wasn't like, I mean, they could have said no. (laughs) Yeah. So they don't get a choice, whether it's, oh, you're, you're going back or you're staying. But if adoption is moving forward, that's their permanent placement, then they get a say in that. That's interesting. Only in the sense of you're going to give a child who's 10 the option of making a potentially life altering decision, but you're not going to give the child the option of staying in a stable home versus going back to a their tribe their biological home even though they feel it's unsafe like that doesn't make sense that doesn't make sense however (laughs) uh parents and adults think kids can make other radical life decisions right now and think that that's totally normal so um, yeah (laughs) i i i can't always follow the logic i try but can't always follow the logic. I thought it was pretty young. I'm like, really? You're going to allow a 10 year old to like determine their future? All right. Yeah, Thank that, you. uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I was nervous. I'm like, what is it going to say? <laughs> <laughs> like, their favorite color changes. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, they don't know man. what they want. They um, don't know what they want. They'll eat ice cream every meal if you let them. <laughs> exactly. Uh huh. So yeah, they got to consent to it and uh, yeah, that's the only choice they really have, I guess. That, uh, that's wild. Or is the, not that this state would be necessarily offering the best therapy, but are they at least offering your foster daughter some type of help or is it just good luck? They were supposed to. We are five months in to having her and she has got extensive, extensive trauma. And uh, I still haven't gotten one therapy appointment set up. So that tells you anything. 
about how great they are about <laughs> caring about the kids. Yeah. Can can I, you set it up or do they have to set it up? They have to because they're the legal guardians. But I, I mean, I've done everything that I possibly can. Um, but it's really tough based on where we are at because of we don't have services. So it all has to be telehealth and yeah, the system is a struggle. I mean, I'm still to this day waiting for when I get our first therapy call and they were supposed to have it set up months ago. So yeah, we're just uh kind of good luck. Figure it out on your own. <laughs> that is but she's wild. Like she's made a 180. That's and, awesome. Yeah, the two to the two to four weeks at first were extremely difficult. And it was like, is this, you know, I I think most people probably would have sent her away because she's a very tough kid but to me I'm like I accept this challenge and if anyone's gonna you know help this kid it's gonna be me and um yeah she just needed someone to never give up on her and believe in her and love her even when she was crazy (laughs) and struggling (laughs) yeah and uh now she's like like she just kind of fits in with our other kids and you wouldn't really know any different so it's been good that's awesome I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Um, I'm going to put your Instagram and all of those things in the show notes, but do you want to verbally plug anything, your website or anything like that? Um, yeah. So I'm on Instagram at Tana Sue underscore fit. Um, or you go to Bristol Bay retreats.com or Bristol Bay retreats on Instagram. That's where I run all my retreats out in Alaska. And I'm mostly on Instagram. So if there's any way to reach out to me, that's probably the best way. Well, thank you again for coming on and thank everyone. Thank you everyone for listening. And I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful day.